It's the Your Life Lived Well podcast with Dr. Kevin Payne, a better way of seeing the life that you want to live. There are a lot of words swirling around chronic illness, health, and healthcare. Big words, strange words, hurtful words, mysterious words, status words, ambiguous words, exclusionary words, many are specialized words we may have never heard of before. The words we choose can make a scary situation worse, or they can make us feel comforted and supported. So in this episode, we're going to dig into some of the language of chronic illness because words have power. I also really appreciate that you've decided to spend some time with me today. Go to yourlifelivedwell.co slash podcast for handy subscription links on the most popular podcast directories. If you appreciate what we do, <laughs> leave a glowing review and five stars, and please share us on social media. Help spread the word and help others live life well. So in this first segment, we're going to talk about how language shapes our reality. In segment two, we'll dive into the weird world of medical words that don't necessarily mean what we think. In segment three, we'll examine some hurtful words related to chronic illness. And in the final segment, we'll look at how we use words to protect ourselves and talk about some ways we can help one another use better words. I said words shape our reality. Let's think about this for a second. When you were diagnosed, did it change the way you thought about what was happening to you? Did it change how other people reacted to you when they heard that word? In my case, like a lot of people with a chronic health condition, I had had weirdness going on for a long time, and it didn't have a name. And that provokes anxiety. It provokes confusion. It provokes a sense of uncertainty about your world. When you know good and well something is not working the way it should be, the way it used to, and you don't have a name for it. And other people around you might look at you askance. They're like, oh, there's Kevin just going off again about whatever it is that we can't name. So when you get the word that diagnoses you, that puts you into that identifiable box that can be shared. On the one hand, it's kind of terrifying to have a name for it, but it's also relieving. It's empowering because now you know what you're dealing with. Now you know that maybe if medicine can't cure it yet, there's something they can do to help you live a better quality life. Having that one word shapes our reality, and it shapes the way we think about it. It shapes the way others think about it. Now, there's actually a word for this. It's called the Saper-Whorf hypothesis. It's called Saper-Whorf because it's named after the two guys who came up with it. Whorf first came up with the idea. He was, uh, I think, an anthropologist. And then Saper uh, followed on and popularized it and developed the idea. Our thoughts and our perceptions are shaped by language. We've all had that experience where we just didn't quite have the word for what it was we were thinking or feeling, and then somebody provided that word for us, and we're like, oh, yeah, 
okay, that seems to fit. We use that word, and, and it becomes a word that we like. So there's this strong form of the Saper-Whorf hypothesis where we say that language determines what we think. Now, this is wrong. But there's a weak form of the Saper-Whorf hypothesis that says how we think is influenced by the words that we have. And this, by you know, most of the evidence out there, is correct. We do tend to use the words that we have to categorize our thoughts and to organize our reality around us. We might not even notice something in the world until we get a name for it. And then we get the name for it and we see it everywhere, right? Language is always changing, and we create words that we think have a use. You may use a word, a word. And if others around you think it's also useful or expressive, they're going to pick up on using that word as well. And some of those words will pass into our vocabulary. And, and that new word or a, a new use for an old word catches on. And it changes the way we see the world. So words have meaning. Language is living and it's always in flux, especially English. English is a wonderful language. English is a logophile's dream. And logophile, of course, is the word for someone who loves words. So we've got a word for almost everything in English. It's got the largest vocabulary of any language humans have ever invented. And it really is the honey badger of languages because it claims new words all the time and we make new words all the time. Our language is always changing. Words engage a couple of important cognitive effects. There's a, what's called a primacy effect or an anchoring effect. And kind of the first description that we have, the first experience that we have with a person or a thing or an activity sets its home. Its baseline in our mind. Is it a good thing or a bad thing? If you have a good experience, you're likely to think it's a good thing if you have that experience first. If you have a bad experience first, you went on a tandem skydive and had a really awful time the first time, there's probably nothing I can do to convince you to think that this is going to be a good experience. Probably not going to happen because you have anchored it in a particular place. We also have really important words that become part of our identity, part of what's called a, a master status. So they're words that are kind of the first words that other people use or maybe you use when you're describing yourself. So for instance, are you a multiple sclerosis patient or a person living with multiple sclerosis? How we phrase that makes us think about that differently. If someone calls me a multiple sclerosis patient, then they've limited me. They've, they've put the illness first, me second, and they've seen only one small slice of me, a quote-unquote patient. If I'm a person living with multiple sclerosis, that's framed entirely differently. I'm a person first, and I just happen to have this one particular condition. So the words we choose implicitly set up our thinking. 
And then we also have another thing that we're going to dig into as we go through this episode is that there are cognitive difficulties associated with unfamiliar words. And so sometimes we're using words that we've always used because they're comfortable to us, because they're somehow familiar, because this is all you've ever known, and they may not be the right word. And so we may have a difficult time changing because for a while we're going to have to actually think about it in order to use a different word for the same thing that we've always known. Another challenge with the words related to chronic illness is all the technical jargon. And we just can't get around that because medicine is technical. And we make really important distinctions. So we're trying to balance technical precision with sharing and understanding with one another. And we do this in two ways. We do it with neologisms which I love that word. It's a word that means making up a new word. A new word is a neologism. We also redefine existing words. And this is not something that's just an issue with medicine. We're just less familiar with those words. So if I were a plumber, for example, I would know that ballcock, diaphragm, estuchin, gray water, PRV, vent stack, water hammer, all have specific technical meanings. If I was really interested in trains, I would know that buckle, cant, coupler, fish plates, passing loop, shunt, yard, all have specific, well-defined technical terms. If I were a youth of today, words like basic, fail, IDK, lit, slay, swag, And, of course, any of those examples that are popular enough that an old guy like me could find out about them are already dated. (laughs) But naming, all these words, naming, those words can hide a lot of ignorance because naming isn't knowing or understanding. If I just had that label, multiple sclerosis, depression, cystic fibrosis, I've given a label to it, but I don't have any deep knowledge of what that condition entails, and I don't have the understanding of the lived experience. As we go to break here, I want us to really think about we all need to be more careful with our words than we often think. And being careful with our words is a way of showing respect to one another. It's a way of supporting one another, and it's a way of showing that you care enough to try to be precise in your understanding. And after this break, we'll come back and we'll talk about some of those weird medical words. We all have challenges. Mine is multiple sclerosis. We each have this one life and we didn't choose to be saddled with chronic illness. But there's a better way. So I choose to just jump. And you can too. It's your life. Live it well. Justjump.life 
It's the Your Life Lived Well podcast. Don't forget to like, share, and subscribe. If we live with chronic medical conditions, there are some medical words that are going to get thrown around no matter what. There are some words that all of us and the people around us should really think about. Well, what does this mean? So let's start with one unwell. What does it mean, really, to be unwell? Now, some of you probably have some really snide jokes that you're thinking about, and, and those may be appropriate. But there is something about your body, brain, or mind that isn't working within what medicine defines as normal operating parameters. And it could be a structural issue or a functional issue. In other words, how we're put together or how we're actually operating, how we're assembled or how we're working, right? Already, if we say someone is unwell, we are saying that they deviate noticeably, in a bad way, from some standard. There is a value judgment involved. So what's the opposite of unwell? Healthy. Now, the World Health Organization defines health, and when I give you this definition, you're going to see the problem here. They define it as, quote, a state of complete physical, mental, and social well-being and not merely the absence of disease or infirmity, end quote. Now, who the heck lives up to that? This is ridiculously unattainable. It is also much broader than our practical medical use of the term. It veers into quality of life issues, not just what we would narrowly think of as health. And that's important because... We tend to think of health as something that exists over to the side of our lives, and it's something that we don't really deal with or pay a lot of attention to until it becomes unwell. So we need a bigger, more integrated concept of health. And this also means that if we take their definition seriously, all of us are every day unwell. We are some greater or lesser distance from an ideal that we never get to. And that's really important because that means that we are not placing the healthy and the unhealthy in an us-versus-them dichotomy. We're not making it adversarial. We're not making it different it's a matter of degree, and we're, we're all on that scale somewhere. And it can change day-to-day, hour-to-hour, minute-to-minute. Live in my carcass, sometimes it's minute-to-minute. There's a lot more going on with health than we think. And there's, there's uh, a couple of decades ago, uh, a researcher, and, uh, uh, I think he's an MD, uh, Marshall Marinker, uh, codified an existing tradition. So, so implicitly, there's, there's a way that we have, in our culture, been using, and this is for like a hundred years now, the words disease, illness, and sickness. And they're not actually direct synonyms. They're different. 
So he codified them, but he didn't come up with this. This has been, and this, some of this distinction, the distinction between disease and illness, has been used for decades in research and sickness with a little less consistency. So this impacts your experience with the way you're living with your condition all the time. And if you notice, if you go back and listen to other episodes of the podcast, which I hope you do, you will see that I very scrupulously use these three words in this way. They mean something different. So disease is a pathology. It is a condition of the living animal or of one of its parts that impairs that normal functioning and is typically manifested by distinguishing signs and symptoms, right? So there's, there's, it's the thing that is wrong. It is the thing that is at the root of those medical factors that are being looked at. An injury, then, is to harm or hurt or to wound, and the word injure may be in a physical or an emotional sense. So a disease or an injury starts a pathological process, most often in the physical sense, like a throat infection or cancer, or sometimes it has an undetermined origin like schizophrenia. And the quality which identifies disease is some deviation from what we're expecting with our biological norm. There's an objectivity to disease, which physicians are able to see, touch, measure, smell. And diseases are valued as the, what medical professionals would call the central facts. There are also four generally accepted kinds of disease, pathogenic, hereditary, physiological, and deficiency. So disease, then, is the physical part of the experience. Illness, then, and here I'm directly quoting from Merinker, quote, is a feeling and experience of unhealth which is entirely personal, interior to the person or patient. Often it accompanies disease, but the disease may be undeclared, as in the early stages of cancer or tuberculosis or diabetes, or in my case, years of MS symptoms. And then sometimes illness exists where no disease can be found. Traditional medical education has made the deafening silence of illness in the absence of disease unbearable to the clinician. The patient can offer the doctor nothing to satisfy his senses. So in other words, illness is what you experience. And that is the thing that no one around you can ever have the direct knowledge of that you do. So disease can be directly identified through medical tests. Your illness, you don't even share your illness with another person that has the same diagnosis. Your experience of it is different. Each of us is the expert in the experience of living our illness. And we have to be good reporters for the people who are trying to help us. Then there's that third term, sickness. And sickness is not disease, and it's not illness. Sickness 
again quoting from Marinker, is the external and public mode of unhealth. Sickness is a social role, and in uh, sociology, it's called the sick role, and there have been active research on this all the way back to the middle part of the 20th century. And we've talked about it in some other episodes. Sickness is a social role, a status, a negotiated position in the world. It's a bargain struck between the person henceforth called sick and society, which is prepared to recognize and sustain that person on the proviso that they're always trying to get better, right? And for some of us, like if you get, you know, if you, if you can cor- uncork the C word on people, cancer, then your sick status is pretty well cemented because in our society, that's kind of a health trump card. It's, this is big, bad, ugly, and people are there for you. They tend to be. If you've got a diagnosis like depression, your standing may be more problematic because other people may feel like they have less of an understanding of what's going on there. So we've got disease, which is physical. We've got illness, which is your subjective psychological experience. And we've got sickness, which is how other people are seeing it and the role you see yourself inhabiting. And then we've got one more word that I'm going to define here before we go to our break, and that is diagnosis. A diagnosis is a process. It is the process of determining which disease, syndrome, or condition best explains a person's medical signs and symptoms. And it's based on information collected from the history of the patient and physical examination of the person seeking medical care. And often it's the result of one or more diagnostic procedures, tests, etc. So it's building on signs and symptoms. And a lot of times we have to engage in a differential diagnosis right? There may be five different things that your symptoms could indicate, and your medical team has to figure out which one is the best guess out of all that. Maybe diagnosis by exclusion. A lot of people come to an MS diagnosis by exclusion because there are a lot of overlapping symptoms, and you have to rule other things out, and if you've ruled everything else out, then it's MS. And this, of course, I could go off on a pet peeve about, remember the TV show House? And about every third episode, he would guess, oh, it's MS! (laughs) And then it almost never turned out to be. But it's that weird of of a condition. You and the people around you have to understand that each of these is an aspect in the experience you live every day. By having these words, you can put them into those buckets. So you can, and you can think, oh, okay, if this is a medical symptom, then that's part of your experience and your experience alone. So you may have to explain that to other people. 
you have to understand that you and the people in your life are negotiating a sick role for you. And none of us want to think of ourselves as sick, but we have some legitimate issues where we may need a little forbearance or a little support sometimes. We should think about the, the negotiated order that's going on there. So I'll let you think about those things, and we will come back and we'll shift gears and we'll talk about some of the hurtful words that are associated with having a chronic condition. I'm Dr. Kevin Payne. Just jump with me into your life lived well. Half of us now live with chronic illness. Mine is multiple sclerosis. It's your life. Live it well. A chronic diagnosis doesn't mean goodbye to the good life you wanted. You don't have to feel overwhelmed or hopeless. I'll show you how to save yourself. Take your first step at justjump.life. It's the Your Life Lived Well podcast. Don't forget to like, share, and subscribe. We know that words give our world shape. They carry meaning and associations. They allow us to efficiently convey a great deal of information. But words can also be used to hide, to distance, and to cut. When we divide the world up into healthy and disabled, we create a world of us and them. We create a world where they are dehumanized and distanced from the rest of life. Because implicitly, psychologically, we're taking all of the good, desirable characteristics and we are associating them with the us group and all of the negative stuff, it, those opposites, those complementary characteristics with the them group. But as we implied when we talked in the last section, there really is a diminished capacity continuum. And we're all on it somewhere. And how diminished we may be can depend on lots and lots of factors that aren't even a part of us as people, but that are characteristics of the environment that we're in. And we're going to be all around that every day, all the time. So what I want to emphasize here is in this word disabled, there are a couple of things we need to keep in mind. So in the first place, disability is a legal and a cultural line that we're drawing across that continuum. We're picking a point, literally, and saying, okay, for legal purposes and cultural purposes, we're going to consider people just on one side of that line, quote-unquote healthy, and just on the other side of that line, quote-unquote disabled. But it's always a matter of degree. Whether you have the legal status of disabled or not has no bearing on the 
difficulty that you have to bear related to managing your chronic condition day in and day out. It just doesn't. The other thing that I want to point out here is sometimes people are surprised when they find out I have multiple sclerosis and I'm not in a wheelchair. Well, the vast majority of us with an MS diagnosis never actually get to that kind of assistive device. We just don't. Uh, Treatments are much better now. Uh, It certainly may happen. And, you know, if it happens to me someday, then I'm going to paint flames on the side of my wheelchair and get a get a little electronic box that makes engine sounds, I'm going to have a good time. But many disabilities are not visible. One of the issues I struggle with sometimes is that I could get a license plate. And 90% of the time, 95% of the time, I wouldn't use it. I just normally park. But there's one occasional time when I know that I'm right on the edge And I may be able to walk into the store fine, but chances are good that my legs are going to lock up and I'm going to need to sit and wait. And I might really, really, really appreciate not having to go so far on my way out. But I haven't yet. But I, you know, I keep, I keep having this conversation with myself, but it, but it's a real thing. So that's something that other people don't really understand. I may be, quote-unquote, not disabled going in some place and then be functionally disabled on my way out. And many of us have conditions like that when we get too fatigued or you know, are, are otherwise pressed past our boundaries. So that's the first thing. We use this language to distance ourselves, and we shouldn't. There's also a really fascinating trend in the disability community, toward what's called cultural or linguistic reappropriation or reclamation or resignification. And we've seen this happen already for decades in, say, the African-American community as they take derogatory words that have been applied to them, racial epithets, and reclaim them as signifiers of their own power or control. We've seen the women's movement do this for decades. We've seen the LGBTQIA plus community do this. And the disabled community is also doing this. Well, that's actually the preferred word for, for many in the community. It's honest. It's pretty clinical. And it's not one of those saccharine words that that engage in what we call erasure, that deny and erase the lived experience of people to make everybody else more comfortable, right? It's not a word like differently abled or physically challenged or special needs or handicapable. Every single one of those just makes me want to choke someone. Those are condescending, they are infantilizing, they are distancing, and they are erasing the lived experience in front of you. They are 
what we call ableist words. Okay, and those are obvious ableist words. Words that attempt to view disability through an able-bodied lens. Words that say, I'm disabled, but I'm still capable of doing X activity, or generally, quote-unquote, being normal. They are words that normalize that. And what does that do? All that's doing is giving false comfort to people around you that are uncomfortable thinking about someone having to face more challenges than they want to acknowledge. There's a young woman named Jessica Ping Wild who really has a, a lovely blog called The Rolling Explorer. And uh, you might want to check it out. But she has a, a list of reasons why we should not use ableist language. And she expressed it better than I could. So here's her list. Six reasons. One, it is not a compliment. You trying to use language that ignores this fundamental difference in our experience that results in more work, more effort, more challenge that some of us have to overcome, that's not a compliment. Second reason is, if we have a disability, your changing the language doesn't change someone's disability. Period. Third, it attempts to alter someone's experience in a way that is palatable for the non-disabled community. Again, it's the status-down disadvantaged group being pigeonholed into something that is not objectionable to the delicate sensibilities of those who are relatively more privileged. Number four, it creates a hierarchy between those who are disabled and can perform certain tasks or do certain activities and those who cannot. It's denying what I said earlier at the beginning of this segment, that this is a continuum. There may be lots of reasons, internal and external, why we can perform a certain task and not another, and it can change. And using that kind of ableist language puts people like me, who can pass as normal within society most of the time, most of the time people would never guess about my health status. We've talked about that. Gee, you don't look sick. That implicitly puts someone like me status up over... A friend of mine whose multiple sclerosis has affected, say, his central nervous system in a slightly different way, and he can't move his legs at all. Now, the difference in our condition literally is damage in a slightly different part of our nervous system, and that's a roll of the dice. And finally, this kind of language, ableist language, here's the last reason, and maybe the most important reason, not to use it, it's not accepted by the wider disability community. Simple as that. It's uncool. So don't. And we haven't even gotten into the more objectionable kinds of language that people use. I mean, words like, and pardon me, I'm going to actually say these words here just because I want you to understand what I'm talking about. Words like cripple or retard or crazy. There's 
no reason ever to sling those words around. And some people do them so casually. The rest of us need to say something when those words are used, even if they are used unreflexively and without thought because they're just not acceptable. And the last thing I'm going to say in this section is for everyone who's listening who is in a medical profession uh, or a medical, therapeutic, health, wellness, caregiving profession, you're in a special position and your words have the power of the position and the institution that you represent. Your words can crush or your words can lift and empower. And it is crucial that you keep that in mind. So after the break, we'll talk about some of the things we can take away from this into our own lives. We all have challenges. Mine is multiple sclerosis. We each have this one life. And we didn't choose to be saddled with chronic illness. But there's a better way. So I choose to just jump. And you can too. It's your life. Live it well. Justjump.life It's the Your Life Lived Well podcast. Don't forget to like, share, and subscribe. We all know we need to use the right words to communicate well. And words have not just their meanings, but they have associations, right? They have connotations and implications. So I'll give you, for instance, you know, I used to teach a really big class, like 500 students in a giant auditorium in a big university, and we were at, geographically, a linguistic nexus. In other words... I would come in one day, and I would ask everybody in the class, so do you use the term soda or pop for those carbonated beverages that you chug along? Now, I would ask that, and then almost immediately, somebody would shoot their hand up and say, you didn't include Coke, because there's a big portion of the southern part of the United States, pretty much, that uses Coke as the descriptive term for every soft drink. And linguists actually make maps out of this. Soda, pop, Coke, and then there are a few, you know, really quirky regionalisms that are tiny, tiny areas. But you can actually start narrowing in on where somebody is geographically from just based on the word that they choose. And a lot of people tend to get really kind of irate. I mean, I would almost get a riot started in the class, and that's why I did it every year, because it was just too much fun getting them uh, with their knickers in a twist uh, about soda versus pop versus don't forget Coke, right? We place a lot of import on what are often just arbitrary cultural distinctions. Pop versus Coke versus Soda. You know, I say soft drink just to kind of, yeah, some people say soda pop, but I say soft drink just to like skirt the entire issue. Because 
whose words get used is really important. A lot of politics happens in the struggle over words. And for those of us who live with a chronic health condition, for those who live with a disabling condition, this is sometimes one of the few things that we can have influence over in a world that is not well suited for us and our needs sometimes. If you don't know which word to use, ask. And if someone from that group corrects you, listen. It's really simple. I mean, we've, we've sort of come to this general agreement that when there are potentially derogatory words being thrown around in society, the people that those words represent get to dictate which ones are used. And that's just common courtesy. And some of us, if we are always status up, if we are always privileged, we don't realize how important that little bit of consideration can be. But it is. We are often, when talking about health and illness, using coded language. And we often engage in code switching. So that's code switching is when we shift languages, dialects, accents, mannerisms. So it may be, say, for example, that a family who immigrated to the United States from, say, Central America, maybe at home they use Spanish, maybe the kids use English when they're in school, but then they revert to Spanish when they're out on the playground. But it's not just full languages. We use different sets of slang terms. We use different grammatical formulations. We use different accents. We engage in code switching, and that means that sometimes physicians and medical professionals will talk one way amongst themselves and another way when they're engaging with the people they're serving. It may mean that within an illness community, we talk one way to each other about our conditions that is, for example, more frank and maybe a little salty that other people may not appreciate. There, there tends to be some dark humor associated with many of those communities. So we're code switching. We do it for lots of different reasons. We want to fit in, and sometimes it's just inadvertent. It just happens. Sometimes People code switch because they're goal-directed. They're actually trying to get something. And so they're, they're speaking in a particular way so that they fit in or they are telling other people around them by the way they're speaking, oh, I'm part of your community. Sometimes we do it because we're communicating secretly or implicitly. And we get a lot of code switching in popular discourse around where some people are, for example, will have politicians saying patently racist or sexist things, but they do it in, in that code-switched language. So we know everybody gets the idea what they're, of what they're talking about. But then they can disavow that what they were implying was what they were really implying. Oh, no, I didn't know. Well, we do that about health and illness and disability as well. We'll engage in some of those coded words that are really dismissive 
of people who are living these challenges every day. Sometimes we code switch because it's the most communicative choice. You know, sometimes the technical word or the slang is just the most evocative. It conveys the most information. And we're advertising group membership. We do this in a lot of ways, but be aware of not just how you are speaking, what you are saying to communicate, but who is the implicit audience. And are you choosing the right audience? Are you trying to pull a fast one on people with the cutesy language choices that you're making? We also have dismissive, pitying language from the well that that just makes many of us, you know, just this side of homicidal. And, you know, and, and we had a recent episode about this, so I'm not going to go into detail on it, but you don't look sick, you're too young for that, uh, you wouldn't be given anything to cope with that you couldn't handle, dear. That's a good one. You poor thing, that's so sad. Remember, there's always someone who has it worse. Oh, it's not a contest. Or somebody saying, yeah, I'm really tired too. All of those are dismissive. Sometimes when people say those things, it's because they're not thinking. Because they're unsure of what to say. And they're just trying to fill in some space with whatever comes to mind. Be aware of that language. I remember one time I had an interaction with a guy I just met. And for some reason it was relevant. And so I happened to mention that I have multiple sclerosis. And to his credit, he just paused. He was, he, and he really, he looked shocked. He didn't know what to say. He felt like he had to say something. So he paused, and then he looked me in the eye, and he said, that was very surprising. I don't know what to say. Thank you for sharing. What a great response. And you could see, you know, I could see the little wheels turning in, in the hamster wheels behind his eyes. He was really thinking about this moment because he almost said something two or three or four times that probably wouldn't have been what he wanted to communicate. So remember, you know, I understand when somebody has one of those kinds of responses to me, but every single one of us really appreciates when somebody else takes that extra moment to think about it and filter it and give a better response. A lot of times we use this language to ignore something, but that doesn't make it go away. All that does is dismiss what's actually in front of you. It protects you by putting it out of your sight because you don't have to live with it. But what it means for the rest of us, is that we are not really being seen. And that's what we all want. We want to be seen. We want to be understood. We want to be connected with at a basic human level. There's that old euphemism, sticks and stones may break my bones, but words may never hurt me. That's just wrong. And we all know that that's wrong. Words can be traumatic. Words can be dismissive. On the other hand, words can bring us together and lift us up. So pause for a moment and make the best choices with your own words. Choose the right words today and make someone's life 
a little bit better. So go forth. Remember, your words have power. Be well, do well, and do good. If you've enjoyed today's topic and want to join the conversation with Dr. Kevin Payne, find Your Life Lived Well on all of your favorite social media sites, Patreon, and of course, yourlifelivedwell.co.